This morning, we're going to read from Isaiah 54. We're just going to read five verses, one to five. Uh, and that is, uh, I think, appropriate for us, given that we've studied Isaiah 53 and we've had Easter Sunday. where we, So we've seen the, the servant, Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and his work on the cross. And we've seen him been raised to new life. We've celebrated that. And now Isaiah 54 speaks into what happens after the servant's work is complete. So let's read along together. Isaiah 54 verses 1 to 5. I'm using the English Standard Version. Here we go. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labour. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband and the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Let's pray together before we jump in. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity to meet together again this morning, even across the broadband and the airwaves. We pray that you would speak your timeless word right into our hearts right now and encourage us and do us good and stir our faith in you so that we might obey the scriptures and sing aloud for joy at all that your servant Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen. Amen. Well, maybe you're like me, and as you walk through the neighbourhood uh, at this time on your one day of exercise or one time of exercise a day, you see the rainbows in the windows of the houses in your neighbourhood or along your street, uh, coloured in by children and put there as a message of encouragement to all those who walk past, uh, a message of hope that there is hope after the storm of the coronavirus, uh, and the message of hope and hope after the storm is lifted right out of Genesis chapter 9 and verse 15, where after God judges the wickedness of human sin, he promises Noah that he will never use floods to destroy the earth again. And as a sign of his promise, he puts the rainbow in the sky to remind Noah and all who see it of his promises to them. And Isaiah 54 actually is like a rainbow in the clouds. It's a message of hope. Uh, it actually refers specifically to Noah in verse 9 in a portion that we didn't read that you could read along on your own. But he does reference the days of Noah and how God had made a promise that he had backed up and guaranteed and symboled and shown by a rainbow. And so Isaiah 54 speaks a similar message of hope that after 
the storm of God's judgment that has fallen on his suffering servant, that Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6 so succinctly put, that he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and that he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and that even though we were the sheep who had gone astray, God put all of our sin onto the suffering servant so that we might experience peace and healing and forgiveness. Uh, that the message of hope that comes in Isaiah 54 is that because of this great exchange, because Christ has received what we deserve and because we receive what he deserves, now there's a message of hope that the death and the resurrection of the servant totally transforms the life of his people. So for Israel, the original audience who Isaiah was speaking to, who are in exile in Babylon, uh, who were searching for hope, but it was proving elusive because they couldn't find it anywhere. They couldn't see it because they had turned away from God and they were in exile and they were dominated by fear and insecurity and uncertainty about the future. Isaiah 54 speaks right into their pain, a message of hope into the darkness, that there is hope after the storm. And likewise today, this is a message of hope, stronger than rainbows in windows, as good as they are. But the message of hope in Isaiah 54 is for people searching for hope that is proving elusive. It's a message of hope for people who are locked down in fear, dominated by insecurity and uncertainty about the future. And this message emerges through the three commands that you see in Isaiah 54. So there's a command in verses one and a command in verse two and a command in verse four. A command to sing, a command to enlarge your tents, and a command to not fear. And these three commands kind of uh, come together to portray a message, to speak a message of hope into the darkness of what we face, whether exile in Babylon or the coronavirus. And the message is this, that the suffering servants successful sin-bearing mission, that Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross and his triumph over sin and death and Satan and hell, through that work, the servant is creating a joyful people, a growing people, and a secure people. So we're going to look at those three things together right now. A joyful people, a growing people, and a secure people. People. So let's begin with that first one, a joyful people. You'll see this in verse one. As Isaiah reflects on all that he's seen in 53, in chapter 53, he, the first thing that comes to his mind, the first thing that, uh, that, that he thinks about as he considers the work of the servant is this, sing, break forth into songs, rejoice. In other words, his message to us is this. When you see the work of the servant, when you see the work of Christ on the cross, his death and his resurrection, that should cause explosive, joyful songs to burst from our hearts and from our lips. And so Isaiah, he identifies in verse one that Israel is like a barren woman, a woman who's had no children. She's a woman who has nothing to be very happy about. Because in the ancient Near East, in the culture that Isaiah was speaking into, infertility and barrenness were a mark of great shame. But then God commands this desolate woman to rejoice and to sing aloud. Now, maybe you're there at home and you think, well, that just sounds cruel. 
and unkind and a little bit absurd. But actually what Isaiah is doing is he's trying to relocate Israel's joy away from themselves and the situation that they find themselves in and to fix their eyes on the servant who will save them. So he doesn't deny that their failure is real. They are barren. And yet he says, you can sing for joy because another will suffer in your place to rescue you. And that should be a cause of great thankfulness and gratitude. And his message to us is this, that as we see and savour the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ, as we reflect on his work and all that he has done for us, it should uh, it should melt our chilly pride. That that kind of frosty, British, stiff, upper lip restraint that we're all so familiar with should thaw at the work of the servant. And as we reflect on the glorious salvation that he has won for us, it should make us laugh and cheer and shout and sing for joy and burst forth with exuberance and singing and dancing. For grace has made us dance. That goes against the view of Christians in the culture that view us like the Puritans in the TV show Blackadder, that we were all dressed in black and we were dour and somber and serious and that Christians were killjoys out to crush the fun out of everybody's life. No, Isaiah says Christians should be the most joyful people on the planet. John Calvin, the old reformer, says this. This is in your notes. The church is the place where the gospel is preached. The gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. But then, he goes on, unhappy people can sing as well to cheer themselves up. So Isaiah is calling us to be a joyful people. It's not a joy that is kind of unthinking religious enthusiasm that we just kind of have to whip ourselves up into a frenzy. Come on, be joyful. No, the joy that Isaiah is commanding is that in light of the servant's work, all that Christ has done that was foreseen in Isaiah 53 has meant that the floodgates of God's mercy have been flung wide open and now peace like a river floods in to our souls, to our lives. That should make us joyful. We've been caught up in a miracle that we don't deserve. We've been partakers of something that is utterly beautiful and yet utterly impossible if it was down to us. But because of Jesus Christ and his work in our place, we've got freedom and forgiveness, like the story of Jesus and Peter that we just heard in the kids section. We've got forgiveness and freedom. And that should cause joy. There was an old hymn writer, Thomas Kelly, who once penned this hymn. He says this, look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight returned victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Hark those bursts of acclamation. Hark those loud triumphant chords. Jesus takes the highest station. Oh, what joy the sight affords. Crown him, crown him, crown him, crown him. King of kings and Lord of lords. So we're to be a joyful people. And that joy is not just to be a Sunday thing. And it's not uh, tied to what kind of personality type that you are. The joy that Isaiah commands is a joy that is to be ours because of Christ. Even in the midst of difficulty and desolation and barrenness. 
even in the midst of storms, even in the midst of the coronavirus. For Christ is victorious and his triumph creates joyful singing people. Ray Ortland, in his commentary on Isaiah, says this. The test of the church's faith is not only the wording of its creed or its statement of faith, but also the gladness in its worship. The gospel demands a carefree spirit. If we aren't going to hell, if we stand to inherit every blessing that almighty God can think of, and if nothing can stand in the way of our restored humanness, because it's all ours through the merit of Christ, the friend of sinners. Well, if that can't make us smile, what can, he says. In other words, you can tell how well we have grasped the gospel. You can tell how well we have understood the goodness of the work of Jesus Christ. You can tell how well it has affected our hearts and our lives by how joyful we are and how we sing, how thankful we are and how much we have to give thanks for and praise God for. Now, I'm super grateful. I hope you are as well to Tom and Angie for the way that they've the last couple of weeks played songs that we can sing along to. It has been wonderful. But part of the sense and Thomas referenced it in his prayer this morning. Part of that sense is that we long to be together to sing again of the goodness of Jesus. But it should also create in us an appetite for that final day when we shall gather around the throne. And as the Apostle John reminds us in Revelation chapter 7, we will cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And multitudes and multitudes of people will join with the elders and the living creatures in heaven and will fall on our faces and will worship around the throne, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. So the work of the servant is supposed to produce joyful people. Secondly, the work of the servant is supposed to produce a growing people. This idea begins in verse 1b, but then continues to the end of verse 3 of chapter 54, as Isaiah foresees a massive explosion and an expansion of growth among the people of God, that we will be a growing people, that growth follows the work of the Saviour. And the servant. And verse 2 describes that this growth is so vigorous that we're going to need a bigger tent. That literally Israel will be bursting at the seams because of what the servant does. Now, the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy is obviously the return of Israel from exile in Babylon to the rebuilding and the restoration of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. But that's an insufficient fulfillment. It's immediate and it's true, but it's also insufficient. And if you stop there, you miss the power of the ultimate fulfillment. Because the promise of Isaiah 54 is not just a population increase for the nation of Israel. It's that the gospel, the good news of God's saving activity will spread to the nations. Then if you fast forward in your Bibles to the book of Acts, you see this being played out in real life, in real time. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and empowered by the Holy Spirit, preaches the gospel. And the result is that people from many nations, people who speak many different languages, respond in faith and are saved. 
And the gospel explodes out onto the scene in Jerusalem. And the early church explodes and it grows and it goes from 12 to 120 to 3,000 in one day. And then on to 5,000 added and more and more multitudes of thousands and thousands added as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. In fulfillment of Isaiah 54. God is producing a joyful people and a growing people as people from many tribes and languages and nations come to hear the good news of the gospel and God works in their hearts to bring them to faith and salvation and they're born again as the children of God. If you're watching this right now and you're not a Christian the extension of the invitation of the good news of the gospel is available to you today. If you're watching right now God would say to you that he invites you to come And respond to the work of the servant. That Jesus Christ died on a cross to save you from your sins. And that through repenting, through turning away from those sins. And turning to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can get in on this good news. You can receive the gift of free salvation. To know the forgiveness that Peter knew in that story. And that many of us at Grace Church know of. We invite you. If that's you, you don't have to do anything other than pray and ask God to forgive your sins and that he would help you to trust him as Lord and Savior. If you want more help to do that, you can just text us or email us. Uh, The information is on our website, uh, gracechurchbristol.org. You can get in touch with us and we'd love to have a conversation with you and talk to you about that. Now, for us who as believers, there's application for us as well. On Wednesday, the 30th of May, uh, 1792, at Friar Lane Baptist Chapel in Nottingham, a leather worker named William Carey preached one of the most influential sermons that has ever been preached in this country. And the text was Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, where Isaiah says, Enlarge the place of your tent, because you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and you will uh, possess the nations and inhabit the cities. And in his sermon, William Carey argued that The text, Isaiah 54, refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ going out to the ends of the earth. And his so-called deathless sermon had just two points. First point was this, expect great things from God. And secondly, attempt great things for God. So he said that Isaiah 52, uh, 54, sorry, calls us to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And this kind of two-point sermon, this slogan, was what launched the modern missionary movement in our country and around the world. And in his sermon, Carey saw that Isaiah was telling us that God is still in the business of saving multitudes of people, multitudes of sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that one of the greatest glories of the servant's work is the ever-expanding, ever-increasing family of God. The people of God are a growing people. And God is still at work today. We, if you are a Christian this morning, you are part of the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 54. You are one who has come to know the gospel that was preached in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So we're part of this. 
but we're also part of it in another way because as a church we desire to see even more people come to know the gospel and to receive the salvation that was won for them by the servant's work so wonderfully portrayed in Isaiah 53. We want people to come and hear the gospel and trust Christ for salvation. That's why we prayed in our corporate prayer a few moments ago for our friends and our family and our neighbours and our co-workers because we want them to come to know Jesus. During this season where people perhaps have questions, where people are looking for hope and they're putting rainbows on their windows as an indicator of that, where people are searching for hope in the storm, we have answers. We have hope. It's not something that we've worked up from within ourselves. But it's the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we want to get in on this time. We want to use the opportunity where people perhaps have more time on their hands to explore things, to host an online Christianity Explored. So on Thursday, uh, May the 7th, we want to host, as I say, a, an online, a Zoom Christianity Explored. And we want to invite you if you're an unbeliever or you, if you're a member of our church and you've got friends and family who are unsaved, to invite them and then join us on the Zoom to watch Christianity Explored, the videos together, and then have a discussion so that people can hear the good news of the gospel. They can explore the claims of Jesus and they might come to know him as Lord and Savior of their own life. So let me encourage you. Uh, it's easier for people to check in on us from the comfort of their own home. It's much less threatening. People are more tuned to to thinking about things of an eternal perspective and value at this time. They've got questions. They want answers. So why don't we begin to now pray and invite? Let's do what William Carey says. Let's expect great things from God. Let's expect that he can save our family and our friends during this time, that he can use all of the means of the coronavirus and the questions that it raises to bring them to a place of faith in Jesus Christ. Let's expect him to do that. But then let's also attempt great things for God. Let's reach out. Let's invite. Let's pray for our neighbours, for our friends, for the people that we love and we care about, for the people that we work with, for the people that live next door to us or across the street from us. Let's ask God to save them and let's invite them to hear the gospel through Christianity Explored. Wouldn't it be great if all of us could just think of one person who we could invite, that we could join with, that we could come along with, to hear the gospel that day and that on that course so that God might do a work in their hearts to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you, please think about now who you could pray for. We'll make some invitations available, digital invitations, so you can send them via email or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram this week. Begin to think about who we could invite, who we could reach out to so that we could be a growing people. So that when all this is done, when this is all over and we're back to meeting in the school, we'll be joined with new faces and new people whom God has saved during this period. So God is still at work. He is growing his people. So let's attempt great things for God and let's expect great things from God. And let's see what he does. For he promises that he is about growing his people. Now, thirdly and finally, Having looked at the joyful people that God is building and the growing people that God is building, he wants us to see that he is also building a secure people, a secure people. And this is right out of verse four, where the command is fear not. We all know it goes without saying that the present situation we're in is difficult. It's really difficult. 
We're having to do things that we've never done before. Lockdowns, social distancing. There's health and economic concerns that are plaguing us. The news reminds us of that. And the future is largely unknown and uncertain. Nobody knows when the schools are going to open. Nobody knows when we're going to go back to work properly. Nobody knows when we can do more than one, part, one piece of exercise a day. Nobody knows when we can meet together again as a church. We don't know what the future holds. And that can make us fearful. It can make us worried. It can make us anxious about things. It can make us insecure. But Isaiah 54 speaks right into that insecurity. He tells us to fear not because he's informing us that God is doing good things. God is always at work and he is always doing good things for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so he commands us not to fear because we're loved by him. He commands us not to fear and he wants us to understand that we are secure. Through the completed work of the servant, that work that Jesus Christ has done in our place, on our behalf, through that great exchange of putting all of our sin onto Jesus and giving all of his righteousness and life to us, God has dealt with our past. We've been forgiven. And he's dealt with our future. We are forgiven and will be forgiven. And we have eternity in heaven promised to us and guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit. But it also deals with our very present need. God is a very present help in our present time of need. And he speaks to some of our greatest fears, that of shame, disgrace, and humiliation and insecurity. And he tells us that the work of the servant, the gospel of Jesus Christ, secures a glorious future for all of God's people. Everything in Israel's past pointed very differently to the contrary of that promise in Isaiah 54. Israel knew disgrace. They knew the disgrace that he says from their youth. And I think that's a reference to Egypt and their slavery and bondage to Egypt. And he, they knew disgrace in their widowhood, which I think is a reference to their immediate situation in exile to Babylon. So they were very familiar with shame and disgrace and behind these images of um of shame and disgrace in their in their youth and in their widowhood is this idea that god is judging his people's sins he was judging their sins and they knew the reproach of widowhood they knew the shame of you of the disgrace of their youth bondage to foreign nations banished from the presence and the land that God had promised them. Now, perhaps you are familiar with shame, just like Israel was. Perhaps you've experienced rejection and humiliation and disgrace in your life. Perhaps you carry around with you a sense of feeling unaccepted and unacceptable, either because of the things that you've done, or because of the things that were sadly and tragically done to you by someone else. Perhaps it's the shame of divorce. Perhaps it's the shame of being mistreated or abused. Perhaps it's the shame of past sexual sin. Perhaps it's the shame of secret addictions currently. 
Perhaps it's the shame of nagging sins that you just can't shake or temptations that you face that you keep collapsing into. Perhaps it's the shame of feeling a fraud, like you've got imposter syndrome that you feel like at some point someone's going to pull the rug out from under my feet and I'm going to be exposed for who I really am. And you're worried. Perhaps it's the shame of bad choices or mistakes, regrets about lifestyle choices that you've made, things that you've done, decisions that you've made that you really wish you hadn't and you could wind the clock back on. God would come to us through Isaiah 54 this morning and speak very tender words into your situation. That because of and through the work of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, there is now no more disgrace for the people of God. But as John would write in John chapter 1, from the fullness of Jesus we all receive now grace upon grace upon grace. You see, God's promise to us is that we wouldn't just merely survive the dark days and somehow just come out at the other end. That the tense times that we're in or the things that we face or have faced that continue to haunt us, that we wouldn't just survive them and grit our teeth and get through them, but that because of the great exchange, there would be a great reversal. That because of all that Christ has done, he would bring his people from disgrace and humiliation and shame into abundant blessing and security hope that the grace that has been won for us through the work of the servant wouldn't just be a theory on a page or something that we heard about in a testimony from someone else but that it would be our uh, reality and our experience and that we would embrace it and enjoy it freely for ourselves that the words of verse four fear not would ring in our ears that because of all that the servant has done because of all that christ has done All our shame and disgrace and humiliation is utterly removed and obliterated from memory. That's the promise. The antidote and the vaccine and the medicine for shame is being rightly related to the God who made us. And that's what he's done through the work of the servant, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse five, if you will, if you've still got your Bibles open for Isaiah says this. Your maker is your husband. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He says the Lord of hosts, that's the Old Testament way of saying the commander of all of the angel armies is your defender and protector. That the God of the whole earth, he's not a a tribal God. He's not a limited God. He's not a small and weak God. He's the God of the entire earth. Is your God. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of armies, angel armies, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth is his name. That's supposed to breed security in our hearts. God has called us into the most intimate and closest of relationships that are possible. He's married himself to us and he will never divorce us or leave us or reject us or fail us. He's married to us. And if we're believers in Jesus Christ this morning, we can enjoy God's grace forever without fear of it ever being retracted 
That's the promise of verse 4 and 5. Because we didn't cause his grace, we can't do anything to lose his grace. Because we didn't start it, we can't reverse it. It's his work and it's finished. And he promises that what he began, he will complete in Philippians 1.6. We're secured and we're loved. In part of chapter 54 that we didn't read, Isaiah says this in verse 8, that God's everlasting love and compassion is upon us. In verses 10 and 11, he says that his steadfast love will not depart from us and his covenant of peace will never be removed. And in verse 13, he declares that we are children of peace and that we'll be like a restored and rebuilt city covered in the finest of precious jewels, beautified and secure and glorious because of the servant's work. Isaiah 54 is a prophecy that's so certain it reads like history that God's people will be transformed from emptiness into abundance, from shame into beauty, from fear to security. And that's supposed to bring joy. Verse one, sing, break forth, sing aloud for joy. And throughout the words of scripture, we discover that God is not ashamed of us, that God is not disgraced by us. He loves us like he loves his son. That's the reality. He's building a secure people. God's eyes and God's heart are filled with love and welcome and compassion for all of his people. He knows everything about us. And yet there is nothing that will shock him. There's nothing that he can discover that will shock him or cause him to retract from us or remove his love from us because it is sure and certain and one for us on the merits of Christ alone. He loves us completely and he's not going to change his mind about that. He is our redeemer and astonishingly he has made us his beloved bride. And this reality, this truth, this identity of us being united with Jesus Christ is worth more than anybody else's approval. And it's more important than any lingering shame or any comparison that we make with others or any wounds that we carry from the past. Just as God made unchanging and unbreakable promises to Noah never to flood the earth again in judgment, and he put a rainbow in the sky to guarantee it, as a sign of that promise, that there would be hope after the storm. So God makes unchanging and unbreakable promises to us that his peace and his steadfast love and salvation will be ours forever because it's been secured for us through Jesus Christ. So that really is hope after the storm. Through the servant's work, God is building a secure people, a growing people and a joyful people. It's a joy that should be ours at all times, not because we deny the difficulties of life, not because we come up with conspiracy theories about the coronavirus, not that we pretend that it isn't real and that life is hard and painful sometimes. But it's a joy in the midst of those difficulties, a joy that is ours because we know that God is with us. He loves us. He's married himself to us. We are his beloved. He is our redeemer, our defender, our protector and our ever faithful husband. The suffering, sin-bearing, successful servant, Jesus Christ, has conquered death and hell, Satan and sin. He is the risen, victorious King of kings, and he is worthy of our praise.
Let's pray.